The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you this evening? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Just the same, Father. Great Good to, to see you. Here. Yes. Father, any uh, prayer requests to begin the program tonight? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, urgent prayers requested for... Sister Mary Joseph, sister is very, very ill, and uh, I, I saw a note uh, uh, about a day or so ago saying that she might pass uh, any time, you know, from this world to the next. So we all need to pray for Sister Mary Joseph. Uh, <clears throat> of course, there are many others who need prayers now too. So, uh, but I would commend her especially to your prayers. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> All right, well, Father, um, we uh, maybe maybe tonight we can just briefly start. Um, maybe a bit biased. Uh, today's the the feast day of my patron Saint Saint Thomas Aquinas. Could you uh -huh. um, offer us a, a few words on on Saint Thomas Aquinas? What do we have to learn from him today on his feast day? <clears throat> Everything. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot or anything. <laughs> uh, saint Thomas was once asked, "What do I have to do to become a saint?" And he responded, will it? First thing, we have to want to be a saint, right? So he was a, a master of brevity, and I'm not, clearly. <laughs> so I feel unworthy to comment on St. Thomas, uh, not only because of that, because he was not only brilliant, but he was very holy. He had a tremendous love for our Lord. You know, St. Thomas was born in the year 1245, died in the year, uh, essentially, 1274, just a little short, I think, I guess it was 50th birthday. He uh, was born to a very, very well-to-do, very noble family. In fact, he was earmarked for a military career. And he certainly had the physical power to uh, uh, serve well as a soldier. Um, but uh, early on, he was uh, actually, uh, he gave his heart to our Lord gave his life to our Lord. He wanted to join a new religious order called the Dominicans. They were mendicants. That was, <clears throat> they uh, actually made their daily bread by begging. And by by actually begging in the streets for uh, just whatever people were willing to give them, they fed not only themselves, but also the poor. So they, they ate the fare of the poor that they themselves begged for the benefit of the poor. Uh, that they were they were known as mendicants, like the Franciscans, which religious order was started at the same time, actually. <clears throat> so um, it was considered to be very much beneath a man of such noble birth as St. Thomas Aquinas to not only enter the priesthood rather than the military life, but um, that was usually reserved for the second born son. But uh, that he would lower himself to be begging in the streets. Uh, his father uh, violently actually opposed his uh, choosing an ecclesiastical career, especially with the mendicant order, and actually had him kidnapped. Uh, surrounded by soldiers, they, they tried to pull the religious habit off of him, um, and they couldn't do that which was a kind of a measure of his power, physical power. But the soldiers could not, could not manage to do that. So they simply uh, conducted him to a castle and uh, held him there, prisoner. He was imprisoned uh, by his father until he should change his mind. In fact, his father was so desperate and so morally destitute that he actually sent a, a woman of uh, very poor moral character into tried to dissuade St. Thomas Aquinas uh, from his 
you know, the celibacy of the priestly life and so on. And St. Thomas reached into the fireplace with his bare hands, pulled out a burning log and chased her out of the room. Uh, after which he he collapsed, actually, and uh, fell into kind of a deep sleep, and he saw two angels coming to him. They were carrying a, a golden cincture. <clears throat> they wrapped it around him and pulled it uh, so tight, and uh, it, it seeming to it was on fire itself, and he woke up with a start at that moment. But uh, they say that after that time, St. Thomas never again experienced um, any impure any impure uh, temptations whatsoever that had any hold over him whatsoever, leading him a very clear mind and a sharp intellect to just uh, ponder the things of God. And when you read his writings, you, you see a very clear, ordered mind, um, which really did try to, as much as possible, um, understand um, the the mysteries of the world in which we live and as uh it, it was created by god in, in in order he uh he also of course delivered his mind not only philosophy but to theology <clears throat> and uh the sacred scriptures to understanding them to expounding them uh summa theologica or something summa theologiae is still the masterwork of theology um and uh, it, the, the standard for teaching Catholic seminarians on the way to the priesthood. Uh, Pope Pius X, St. Pius X, made that very clear in his encyclical Vashendi. He said, teaching the scholastic philosophy and theology of St. Thomas Aquinas was the key to arm the church and the clergy in particular against modernism. And so he ordered that that, that could be the standard philosophical and theological training of every seminarian, <clears throat> everyone who would aspire to the priesthood, and anyone who therefore would aspire to preach or hear confessions or uh, teach in Catholic universities and, and colleges and so on. <clears throat> so um, St. Thomas um, was, uh, well, there are many, many stories related to his life uh, that show a man of iron will um, but an iron will for good. He was a very willful man, but he was willful in the sense that he was willful for God's will. He wasn't self-willed. He was God-willed. Right? <clears throat> and he gave his will entirely to God. So he had a very powerful will, which was entirely submissive to the will of God in everything. Um, he had a scribe, you might say, assigned to him, one of the brothers of the community, who would take dictation from St. Thomas. And um, uh, <clears throat> that was necessary because even at meals, St. Thomas would be pondering these mysteries. And uh, he would get certain insights that uh, his scribe was always ready to, to jot down for him. And after all of that... <clears throat> Uh, the brother was a Renaud, what was his name? I, I think it was Renard, Renaud. Uh, actually, uh, caught St. Thomas one day, uh, having scooped up <clears throat> all of the, all of the, his writings in one big bundle in his arms. He was carrying them out, and he, he asked what Thomas was doing, and he said, I'm taking them to bury them. He says, they're nothing but a pile of straw. Um, this was St. Thomas's reaction from his mystical experiences. But uh, St. Thomas um, did have the mystical experiences of uh, what we know as the illuminative way, uh, as the, the uh, immediate predecessor to the unitive way of the spiritual life. And um, St. Thomas saw the theological teachings, uh, his theological writings, to be so vastly inferior to just the reality of God's majesty that he really did think that they were uh, just a pile of straw and not worthy. That was his humility speaking. Right? <clears throat> um, but uh, a, a contemporary of St. Thomas Aquinas was St. Bonaventure. And uh, St. Bonaventure uh, and St. Thomas were called in by the Pope 
would have been about the year 1250 or so. Uh, because the Pope wanted to institute a, a feast of the, of the body of Christ, Corpus Christi. And um, so uh, he asked the two greatest lights of the time, St. Bonaventure, a Franciscan, St. Thomas Aquinas, a Dominican, uh, to basically compose the prayers, not that they would write the prayers, but they would compose them, bring them together from sacred scripture, the writings of the fathers and so on. <clears throat> and um, so at the appointed day, both St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas Aquinas appeared before the Pope and they presented their work. And I don't know how it was decided, but St. Thomas Aquinas actually um, was called upon to present his work first, and he did. And as he did present the work that was consisted of the uh, prayers of the Mass, the propers of the Mass for Corpus Christi, and the Divine Office, the breviary, the priest prays every day, but in this case, the Divine Office that would be sung, well, as St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas did, in choir with their uh, members of their religious house, of their religious order. And um, what St. Thomas presented was so compelling and so beautiful that uh, St. Bonaventure standing at hand there silently listening um, was actually tearing to pieces the work that he had done because he thought it was so <coughs> vastly inferior to what St. Thomas had produced. And so when it came time for St. Bonaventure to present what he had done, all of that work over all of those months, he simply held out a pile of confetti and said, there's nothing, there's nothing to compare. So he paid great tribute to St. Thomas Aquinas in that regard. But you can be sure that St. Thomas's work was the result of prayer. It was just uh, actually contemplation, and uh, it wasn't uh, just, let's say, an intellectual exercise for him. It really was... A matter of prayer and uh, what he composed he composed as prayer it's beautiful you read the divine office for corpus christi uh the prayers of the mass for corpus christi you can understand after all after all these centuries why it was so beautiful saint thomas uh composed the hymns too seven magnificent hymns to the blessed sacrament and the music uh to it by which they are sung so uh we still have that today and they haven't lost if anything, they've just gained in their splendor over all these centuries. Just wonderful. <clears throat> um, again, you know, I, I, one could go on and uh, and talk about so many things that came to St. Thomas. Anyway, he, he was he was uh, in Rome. Uh, some of our students are going to be in Rome soon. We'll have about uh, about thirty six, thirty seven of us as a group will be in Rome, and we'll go to the Church of Santa Sabina on the Aventine Hill, one of the seven hills in Rome. The greater Aventine, Santa Sabina, an ancient church there, uh, was in the uh, possession of the Dominicans at the time of St. Thomas Aquinas, and he actually stayed there. When he was in Rome, he lived at that convent associated with Santa Sabina. And... Um, he would prostrate himself actually by night on the pavement before the Blessed Sacrament, as is commemorated in the actual pavement, the inscriptions on the pavement, pavement there. Um, but it was during that time in Rome that, that he actually did this presentation of the prayer. Uh, later on, three, about three centuries later, Pope St. Pius V would be in residence at that very uh, place in Santa Sabina and the convent associated with it. And um, so these two great saints, you know, uh, 300 years apart, uh, living there bring great glory to that, that, that place. I want their students to know. Um, there they, they even have uh, relics of St. Pius V, the skull cap and other things that he wore. But in any case, um, St. Thomas was summoned to the Second Council of Lyon 1274, and it was while he was on his way there that he fell ill, wound up, I think, at a Cistercian monastery, and his illness was understandable. Um, it followed upon a 
revelation or a, a vision that he had, attested to by his, his scribe, the brother assigned to him. He, the brother said that he walked into the church early one morning and found St. Thomas offering Mass. But St. Thomas was hovering in the air. He was levitating. And considering the size, the physical size of St. Thomas, that must have been quite a sight. Because he was a very large, not obese by any means, but a very, very solid, imposing man. Uh, and um, he was hovering uh, at eye level with the crucifix uh, behind the altar. And um, the brother heard the words come from the crucifix, the corpus of our Lord. And the crucifix spoke to St. Thomas, saying, Thou hast written well of me, Thomas, what wouldst thou have as thy reward? And he heard St. Thomas answer and say, Only thyself, O Lord, only thyself. And with that, um, St. Thomas um, settled back down, finished the Mass, and uh, it was not that long after that uh, the journey to the Second Council of Lyon, he fell ill and he was at the Cistercian Monastery. Um, they probably thought, hoped that he was kind of blessing, but he was actually dying. <clears throat> the uh, Cistercians asked him to give them a commentary from what proved to be his deathbed on the book, The Canticle of Canticles, which again is about the love of God for us and our love for him. And that was the last um, commentary that St. Thomas issued from his deathbed there on the, on the book, The Canticle of Canticles, The Love of God. He died there. And uh, so um, he's, of course, the supreme patron saint of all Catholic education. There are other Catholic educators who are also given that title, but none can uh, challenge St. Thomas for a certain preeminence in that. <clears throat> so it is St. Thomas's feast day today, and he certainly is a central figure for our traditional Catholic faith, right? <clears throat> the Mass that we offer each day, the traditional Mass, is the Mass that he offered when Pope St. Pius V, who was a priest of his own Dominican order, and actually that's why popes then traditionally wore the white habit, uh, because uh, actually St. Pius V uh, continued to wear his Dominican habit, uh, even as Pope, while he was in residence at uh, Santa Sabina. And um, that, that became the standard uh, from St. Pius V onward. But St. Thomas Aquinas um, himself um, not only offered Mass every day, but the understanding is that he, in preparation for the Mass that he would offer, he served a Mass. And then in Thanksgiving, after offering his Mass, he would serve another Mass each day. Uh, so uh, very devoted to our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. As I mentioned, very devoted to the poor. He would actually stand out on the streets begging food for himself and for them. And they would all share whatever was given, donated. Um, so uh, these are two hallmarks of sanctity. If you read the, uh, the, um, the readings of the second nocturne of Matins for each feast day, uh, time and time again, uh, there we mentioned two characteristics of the saintly soul, the love for our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament, the mystery of faith, uh, as the Church refers to it, and a great uh, solicitude for the poor. And St. Thomas excelled in both, certainly. Um, his humility was remarkable, and uh, he's a great, well, we'd have to say, role model, a supernatural role model for us. Uh, we call upon him uh, frequently to, to bless our efforts here in remaining faithful to our Lord in the traditional Catholic faith and the traditional Catholic religion. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. Very beautiful. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Uh, Father, we have uh, a few questions and other topics that we wanted to discuss tonight. Um, we could uh, start with a viewer email, though, that we've had for a while. 
Um, very interesting question. Father, when Herod determined to kill the Christ with the slaughter of the innocents, did St. John the Baptist also flee? Well, this presumes, uh, presumes that St. John the Baptist was in Bethlehem. <clears throat> but uh, it's generally conceded he was not in Bethlehem. Uh, I mean, the sacred scripture tells us uh, that the angel Gabriel told the Blessed Mother that her kinswoman, some translated cousin, uh, Elizabeth, was with child, and that would have been St. John the Baptist, already six months. Now, one might infer from that that Elizabeth was of the tribe of David, as was Mary, the Blessed Mother, but uh, Elizabeth seems to have been the maternal aunt of the Blessed Mother, a, a maternal aunt of our Blessed Lady. But she is generally conceded to have been of the tribe, well, a descendant of Aaron, of the priestly caste, and she was married to Zachary, who was, again, the, of the priestly caste. And in fact, he was serving as the high priest of that year. He was in the course of Abia, descended from Aaron, and uh, you would say the, the tribe of Levites, right? <clears throat> so I found it interesting that um, that Elizabeth of the tribe of, uh, well, descendant of Aaron, would be a close kinswoman of a blessed lady of the tribe of, uh, of uh, well, descended from David. Right? But uh, thus it was. And, uh, but you see, um, so it's not that John the Baptist was summoned to Bethlehem. Um, that was the ancestral home of David, and that's where the uh, St. Joseph, the Blessed Mother, and, and our Lord were summoned. Our Lord, even in the womb of Our Lady, summoned um, to Bethlehem. wasn't necessarily the case with John the Baptist. In fact, uh, some of the writers, Cornelius Elapide, um, which we have through the good graces of our local Cornelius scholar, uh, cites Baronius saying that uh, because John the Baptist uh, birth was associated with that of our Lord, and uh, that, that his birth also was considered to be quite miraculous uh, because Elizabeth and Zachary were beyond the age of childbearing uh, and child conceiving, that uh, John the Baptist had quite a reputation too, and that Herod feared that John the Baptist himself might somehow be involved in the prophecy uh, and the, and the, the news was brought by the kings, the Magi. And so Herod determined that John the Baptist had to die also. And so there is a tradition that uh, Elizabeth took uh, the child John the Baptist into the wilderness and actually hid him there. She died. And, uh, but John the Baptist grew there and uh, became, well, started at a very early age as a d desert dweller, so to speak, because he, he did live in the desert, living on, uh, living on locusts and honey, as you know. Uh, but according to that tradition, that would have put him out in the desert at a very early age, where he was sequestered by his mother to, be, to you know, protect him from Herod. But um, the assumption that, that John the Baptist was summoned uh, with uh, his parents, Zachary and Elizabeth, to Bethlehem would not have held true because they were not of the tribe of David, not descendants of the Davidic line there. So, um, but, you know, even, even then, even if he had been, even if, you know, we were to say, well, because Elizabeth was, uh, you know, a descendant of David, like the Blessed Mother, even if we were to, to acknowledge that, uh, by the time a couple of years had passed since our Lord's birth, that still doesn't mean that John the Baptist and his parents would still be in Bethlehem when the soldiers arrived. Uh, as you know, Herod instructed them to put to death children two years and younger. So, um, you know, we'd have to say that by that time, most of those families that had been descended of, of David um, had returned home.
the census had finished and they had returned. The Blessed Mother and St. Joseph, not, not so. We know that. <clears throat> but there's no reason to think that all of the others were still gathered there in, in Bethlehem uh, two years later. Um, so even, even then, it wouldn't have been necessary to, for John the Baptist to have uh, fled from Bethlehem into the, into the desert. Mm -hmm. It just wouldn't have happened. Is that clear? I think so. Uh, but, yeah. Okay, I hope so. That's an interesting question. Uh, I never thought of that before. <laughs> interesting. Uh, okay, another email. Father, during the time of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, there was an anti-pope, Anacletus II, and the true pope, Innocent II. Uh, during that time, Father, would it have been a sin to attend Mass offered by a priest who recognized Anacletus II as pope and mentioned him in the canon of Mass? Well, I think the Church itself has already given the answer to that. Because there were saints who actually did follow. Um, both, well, some saints followed the lineage of Rome and others the lineage of Avignon. And, um, you know, we're, we're talk, that's what we're talking about here during the Great Western Schism, right? As you know, Tom, there was a, a pope, as it were, as it was the true pope, Urban, who had been elected in Rome, but the problem arose when the French cardinals disowned him. The very French cardinals who had uh, actually elected him uh, disavowed him, claiming that they had elected him under duress, so their, vow, their, their votes did not count. As it turns out, the real story was that Urban was trying to impose upon them um, a way of life that they, they found less than enticing. They were used to living like secular princes. And Urban VI was rather austere, and he was trying to make the cardinals uh, live uh, less, shall we say, secular lives and live more as churchmen with simplicity and austerity uh, like himself. And the French cardinals would have none of it. <clears throat> that seems to have been what was really behind all of this. Um, <clears throat> uh, although the Italians did, um, one, once, um, well, in, in any case, um, actually, I'm, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, uh, but maybe not, maybe not. In any case, um, the, um, the French uh, cardinals went back to Avignon, and uh, they elected uh, another person in his place, and they said that, well, this is the Pope we're really voting for, so our votes really do count, and this is the Pope who's truly elected now. And so this created an enormous amount of confusion. We're talking about the early 1300s right now, after Pope Boniface VIII. <clears throat> so, um, so when you have the same cardinals, basically, uh, electing successively two different men as popes, this is inevitably going to create confusion. And it did. And the confusion was so great that you had a St. Catherine of Siena, who uh, actually was instrumental in convincing the popes of Avignon earlier in the century to return to Rome. And now um, she sees this happen. Uh, relatively soon after she convinced the Pope to return to Rome and resume residence in Rome, he dies, and then the next uh, election brings this upon the Church. And uh, she understood that the Pope, the man elected in Rome originally by the cardinals, including the French cardinals, was truly the Pope, and she gave her allegiance to Urban. And, uh, but St. Vincent Ferrer, who was a great, great saint also, um, found the situation so bewildering. In, in his estimation, he took the word of the French cardinals, and he, uh, believing them, uh, recognized the man they'd elected in Avignon as the true vicar of Christ on earth. Um, it would have taken some kind of divine illumination to uh, really uh, dispel all, all doubts and all wonderments uh, about this and you know how it went on from there, that uh, the church was in such dire straits by this, that uh, churchmen secured the uh, agreement of the uh, 
the Pope in Rome and the pretender in Avignon, that they would both resign if a council, as it turned out, a, a council in Pisa would agree to elect someone, and they did, and they named him, he took the name John, but then unfortunately the, the Pope in Rome and the pretender in Avignon did not resign. And uh, so now this multiplied the confusion, right? So the church's judgment of all this is, is not been to declare them anti-popes and not to condemn those who follow them because of the, of, of the nature of the problem and the confusion that it caused. Uh, the church never denounced uh, St. Vincent Ferrer for following the wrong man. Uh, no doubt that St. Vincent was certainly offering Mass and uh, naming the pretender in Avignon as, um, as a true pope. And the church never criticized him, never accused him of sin for that. Um, there was a, a, you might say, legitimate confusion. Um, now, somebody who had serious doubts and went ahead and did that would be culpable to some extent insofar, insofar as he simply uh, ignored the danger and went ahead anyway for whatever reason, convenience or something. But if someone was convinced uh, that a certain man was the legitimate supreme pontiff, then he could not be blamed for that. Um, and the church did not blame him for that. So the church has already answered that question that, uh, no, they would not have been committing sin if they were making an honest mistake and acting in good faith. Uh, they were not excommunicated by the church. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that's, that's important for us to, to remember in our own day and important for us to remember when it came to the Council of Constance later. Uh, which gave the troop of true Pope Martin V, who actually um, was embraced by the entire Catholic Church after that as the true pontiff. And he's the one who actually settled the question about who was the true, where the true successor of Peter had been all that time. But I think he also settled the question that uh, because of the nature of the problem and the legitimate confusion in the minds of the Catholic people that no one was going to be censured for an honest mistake on their part. Uh, two things that come to mind, the terrible responsibility of the cardinals who caused this problem. Uh, I'm not their judge, God is their judge, but it's still a very frightening thing to, to, to see what damage they did and uh, what, they, what damage they inflicted on the church uh, by the actions they took and the responsibility that they reasonably would bear before God at their own judgment for this. Um, I say that's one thing. A second thing, I'll say there are three now, three points I want to make. Uh, a second point is that while all of this was going on, they all continued to practice the traditional Catholic faith. They didn't change the Mass. They didn't change the doctrines of the faith. So all of these people, whether they were following the true Pope in Avignon, whether they were following the pretender, in, I'm sorry, whether they were following the true Pope in Rome, or they were following the pretender in Avignon, or even following John in Pisa at some point, they were all practicing the same faith. They all believed the same faith, and they all were practicing the same religion. They did not deviate one bit from the faith <clears throat> or the true practice of the faith, the religion. Uh, truly remarkable, but that again shows divine providence. And uh, that's the third point I want to make, that through it all, God um, basically showed us that ultimately we have to look to him for the solution to all of these problems. That what they faced at that time seemed to be um, irreversible. It seemed that there was no solution. And every expedient they took to try to solve the problem seemed to make it worse. And um, 
that people living at that time might have figured that there is no way out of this mess. Um, but there is. God has a way. Um, and uh, it is his church, and he will find a way, as only he can. He has to provide the graces necessary, though, as you and I can't. We can only beg for them. But God and God alone can provide them. We have to remember that now in the condition of the church today, too. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but God knows he's still very much, uh, Jesus Christ is still the head of the church. He's still the head of, of his body here on earth. And, um, he, uh, and he alone can solve this problem. So we have to humble ourselves a little bit and uh, not do so much hand-wringing and think, um, we've reached an impasse, there's no way out. I mean, that's how the apostles saw our Lord's death on the cross and his body buried in the tomb, right? Um, so it took them quite a while. And our Lord himself had to come and convince them that he'd really risen from the dead. He had to prove it to them. And even after he proved it to them, they still had a hard time, um, you know, coming to terms with it. Well, you know, if it's, you know, I can see people today reacting very much as the apostles did when our Lord died, thinking, well, you know, there's no way out of this mess. Humanly speaking, that would be true. <clears throat> For our Lord, though, he will show what God can do. He can raise a Lazarus from the dead. He can raise himself from the dead. And <clears throat> the church is not dead. Right? Uh, not at all, any more than our Lord himself is. He's alive, very much so. So um, we we can learn something from this occasion that the gentleman, if it is gentleman, I think, uh, brought up here about that time of the great Western schism, mm -hmm. and that is do not underestimate the power of God <laughs> to make everything turn out right. Yeah, Father, uh, speaking of the situation in the church today, do you have any update on uh, Francis's synod on synodality <coughs> that? Uh, has been going on now and still will be going on for uh, some time. Any update on that, Father? Hmm. Well, as you know, Tom, Francis uh, announced early on in his uh, career, he announced that he was going to produce a synodal church, right? And uh, the first thing I thought of was that he's going to restructure the church into something that she never was and which Christ himself did not do. Christ himself did not establish a synodal church. I think even Francis would have to say that the synodal church is a new creation of his own. I think he'd have to acknowledge, uh, even he, that the church was never a synodal church, <clears throat> but that he is inventing it. He would claim to be uh, prompted by the Spirit to do this. I, uh, but the fact is, um, when, when he announced the, the invention of this synodal church, an entirely new structure, <clears throat> a religious structure, uh, one of the first things I thought of was the Soviet Union, strangely enough, because Soviet in Russian means basically a small council. Uh, a small council, and that's what Francis is talking about when he describes his synodal church. He talks about you having these various groups of the faithful around the world who carry on their 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 group discussions and their their synods, their Soviets, <clears throat> and then they report to the higher Soviet above them. Uh, and then they, that reports to the higher level of the Soviets above them. And finally, it gets to the, the ultimate, the, the secretary of the, of the party, the Communist Party, which then pronounces upon the consensus of all of these different, different uh, councils, individual councils, that have basically, um, um, you know, it's, it's supposed to be the dic dictatorship of the proletariat, so the, the common people, the proletariat, are supposed to uh, report on the true uh, revelation of the moment. Um, in religious terms, this would mean that, yeah, I should say in modernist terms, 
this would be the, uh, the people uh, reporting of their experiences of God and, and their experiences of Christ and living a, the life of Christians, Catholics, in this moment in the church's history, they would actually uh, give an account of them, their, their lives, and um, the difficulties, the struggles, the, the, the turmoil, uh, you know, the, 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 the <clears throat> basic uh, uh, problems that they encounter living their daily lives, they would give an account of all this. And then it would be reported up the chain of command uh, and ultimately arrive at the top and this, the, uh, the secretary of the Communist Party would then pronounce uh, like whatever dogmas that they would produce and give the policies that had to be followed. How does that apply? Well, if you look at the encyclical Pascendi uh, condemning the errors of the modernist, St. Pius X himself issued that encyclical September 8, 1907. And he talked about the vision the modernists had of the church. And it is exactly what, what Francis is describing in his synodal church. It's exactly what Francis described. <clears throat> Francis uh, describes that the impetus of the faith, that is, the experience of faith starts in the grassroots with the common man. That's where the experience of faith begins. They experience the divine there. They experience God as he is now in the world. And that experience then has to, in a sense, be collectivized. We have to canvas that experience of the people. We canvas the people in these synods, these local synods, like the little Soviets. <clears throat> and they confer, and they kind of reach a consensus, and they report their consensus to the next level up. Now, this is exactly the process that Francis describes when he brings, brings up this idea of a synodal church. He talks about precisely this, canvassing the laity, <clears throat> finding out from them what their experience of the divine is, what their experience of God is, because that's where the faith experience is right now. And then that comes up through the bishops. And if you see how Francis has set this up, he has these synods in Rome. He calls them periodically the indigenous peoples of the Amazon, right? The young people, married people. He calls in these various couples of married people, various uh, native um, South Americans from the Amazon. And what they're doing is they're hunkering down in these groups. <clears throat> and they're like work groups. They're like, uh, what, what do you call them? Uh, uh, there's a certain name for the think think tanks or whatever. There's a name for them in corporate America. Focus and, groups. Uh, focus groups, yeah, basically. And they are supposed to uh, kind of discern the faith experience of this segment of the church at that moment. And they then are supposed to basically report to the bishops. They read these reports to the bishops of what these groups have produced of their faith experience. The bishops then are supposed to condense all of that down. Uh, they're supposed to refine, you might say, or um, uh, I, guess, I guess refine it all down to a co comprehensive and coherent message that takes it all to Francis. And Francis is then meant to take all of that and to further distill it down into some brief statements of what the faith means at this moment. I'm telling you, if you go back to the, the document, the original documents, which Francis issued, in which he unveiled this whole idea, I think it was on the 50th anniversary of, uh, of, of uh, Vatican II, I think it was, that Paul VI talked about the synod, and that Francis was basing himself on that, that he was going to then build the synodal church. Uh, based upon these committees, uh, local committees, um, and then having the message of the faith basically rise through this 
filtering process. Francis himself described it as an inverted pyramid, almost as though you had the, the broad section of the church here and all of these ideas filtering down and filtering down and filtering down through the bishops and finally coming to him. And then he would translate all of this into brief statements, <clears throat> which we could all accept, accept not as dogmas, not as doctrines, because these things are not changeable, <clears throat> but by definition, <clears throat> what Francis is describing is changeable because it's continually evolving. Why? Because the faith experience of the people that you're basically listening to, where you're getting all of this originally from, that's constantly evolving. That's constantly changing. <clears throat> so it's as though the very concept of God and even the experience of God, and perhaps by uh, extension, even God himself is subject to a process of evolutionary progress. <clears throat> and this is one thing that Francis has made clear. Synodality is a process. You never actually arrive at a permanent, fixed, infallible, unchangeable truth. As Francis has already rejected the concept of doctrine for that very reason. Right? It is a continual process. This is exactly the modernist concept of church, of faith. And um, if you want to, to read about it in, in the in the encyclical of, Saint, of Pope St. Pius X, which he condemned there. You go and read about the modernist concept of the church itself and how it works, <clears throat> the role of the lady, the role of the bishops, the role of the Supreme Pontiff. Uh, you see it all mapped out there. Uh, Francis might just as well have gone to Pescendi, read it, and said, well, there it is. That's what St. Pius X condemned as modernism, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. He might as well have just said, that's, that's what I'm doing right now. <clears throat> it, is, it is the Church of Modernism that St. Pius X condemned as being the synthesis of all heresies. That is what they're now in the process of forming. I mean, Francis has been uh, laboring toward this all of his uh, reign, as it were, over the modernist Novosoro Church, right? Uh, this is going to be his master work. It was for this that he was um, in, he was in, installed there, you might say intruded there, by the uh, St. Gallen Mafia. Um, they considered him to be the man for the job to actually create this this church, this modernist church, which is a church of what he calls synodality. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, it's 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 uh, well underway right now. <clears throat> it's not. It will be the antithesis of the of the true Catholic Church, with the antithesis of the, of the true Catholic religion because it will be based on the antithesis of true Catholic belief. It'll be based on modernism. What can a Catholic do today to oppose that? Father, it sounds very frightening. <laughs> have to practice the traditional Catholic faith. In the, first of all, have to believe the true Catholic faith. As, um, as Don Murr said, and I think rightly so, he said, if you want to get started um, uh, addressing what's happening uh, right now, you have to go back to the catechism. You have to go back to the true catechism, learn it, and you have to believe it. And so I'd say the first step is to learn and believe the true traditional Catholic faith, um, which you find in the catechism of the Council of Trent and all of the catechisms that it generated. Uh, you won't find that in the modernist cate catechisms. <clears throat> But you have to have the traditional Catholic faith, and then you have to put it into practice, which means you have to practice the traditional Catholic religion. And that means adhering to the traditional Catholic Mass, rejecting the new Mass, receiving the true traditional Catholic sacraments, and rejecting the new sacraments. These are all the product of modernism, and they all have as their purpose 
to uh, basically give birth to the, to the modernist church of Francis. All, all of his new mass and his new sacraments were all designed to carry the minds and the hearts of the Catholic people away from the traditional Catholic faith and the traditional Catholic religion. Um, and to um, soften them up, uh, basically, in order to form in them um, a new concept, not only of the faith, of the religion, but of Christ himself. Ultimately, he wants to replace the very traditional Catholic concept of God with the, uh, the, the modernist concept of an evolving God and whom we experience in, in an evolving, constantly changing way. Okay, well, um, Father, we're... We have to, one has to, I'm sorry, Tom, just no. to say, just to sum up again, we have to adhere to the traditional Catholic religion, uh, which is the practice of the true traditional Catholic faith, right, right. basically. Yep. Well, Father, we're running out of time for, for tonight's program. Um, as always, uh, there are there's much more that, that we could talk about. Um, there were multiple... Uh, Current events um, in the political sphere that we wanted to um, to discuss. I could just well, perhaps mention. we could just address them very briefly. And yeah, yeah, talk about them more. Yeah, fully we, next time. We um, what do you think? We actually had had three different topics here that we, that we thought worthy of mention. Um, one is the uh, I believe forty thousand hours of, of insurrection tapes that Tucker Carlson um, mm. has has uh, apparently. Um, a hold of those and has been sifting through those and, and showing some of those on his program and uh, apparently dispelling some of the uh, January 6th uh, <coughs> myths. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also have the, the the WHO treaty, WHO, World Health Organization treaty on health equality um, that's apparently uh, happening now, very concerning things with that. And then also, um, finally, Father, not exactly sure how to quantify this, but there um has just, it just seems to be a lot of strange occurrences lately with um, train derailments. I believe it was just yesterday, right, where there was another train um, just north of us here, I think in Springfield, Ohio, um, another another train derailment there. But we've also heard um, uh, a lot of semis ha have been overturning recently, a lot of chemical um, planes, plants, have, plants have been blowing up and burning, uh, exploding, yeah. a lot of strange things <clears throat> happening. Food processing plants burning yeah, down. Yeah, so. a lot of uh, a lot of strange things happening mm -hmm. there, Father. But um, nothing, well, Tom, nothing uh, good, really. Just briefly, okay. Yeah. In reverse order. Yeah. There, there certainly is enough going on in terms of the destruction of um, you know factories, uh, food processing plants, uh, railroad cars, and so on. That uh, it would give one reason to think that there is sabotage. I think people are, are thinking that we're at war uh, domestically, that there are agents at work in our, uh, in our country who are working to sabotage uh, the country from within and create turmoil within, uh, social unrest, and so on. And uh, I think they have good reason for questioning whether or not this is the work of sabotage. An enemy has done this, right? Uh, we can talk about that more fully. There's a lot more information to give on this. Um, but then moving on to the question of the World Health Organization, it's very well known that uh, President Biden himself is, has undertaken to enter into a special pact with the World Health Organization to basically surrender our American sovereignty and to make our entire country and all its people subject to dictatorial decisions by the World Health Organization that could actually lock down the entire country, uh, force vaccinations on the entire country, and so on. That he's actually ceding this uh, authority of the World Health Organization over the United States of America. Uh, in normal times, uh, I think people could consider that to be treason, to surrender the country into the power of her enemies. Uh, to give away the national sovereignty. I think they would have a, a good reason to, to make a case that this is treasonous to do this. Uh, can a president take it upon himself to do this by executive order or what? I, I find it hard to believe that this is actually constitutional, but uh, I'd, I'd like to discuss it with people who know. 
the answer to those questions. And uh, finally, the question of the so-called insurrection. There was an insurrection, Tom. The insurrection is real. There are those who insist that there was no real insurrection, that this was invented. There actually was an insurrection. But of course, it's the opposite of what we're told. Um, um, again, if I may just briefly summarize, as one can, can read in the New York Times, uh, that paragon of truth-telling, right? Uh, there were 147 Republicans, eight in the Senate, as I recall, and the rest, 139, in the House of Representatives, who had declared themselves intent upon objecting to the presidential election of 2020 that they were going to object there on the floor of the uh, joint session of Congress when the Senate and the House met together to consider the results of the election, that these men and women, 139 in the House of Representatives and eight in the Senate, were going to stand up and object on the basis of the flagrant uh, dishonesty and, and rampant fraud, right? within the electoral process, the, the election process. Now, that constituted a major, major problem for the Democrats. If these Republicans had um, actually been allowed to stand up and as a part of the, of every, every right, they had every right to do it. It was part of the, the, the process, you know, the election process allowed them to do that, to make that objection. That would have been a major problem for the Democrats. And so the, the Democrats had to stop it. They had to prevent that from happening. And there's, I believe, this is my own personal belief, that the so-called insurrection was their doing. That they engineered this so-called insurrection precisely to prevent this, uh, these objections from being uh, voiced on the floor of the, uh, the, the joint session of Congress, uh, which would have been a real constitutional problem for them to overcome. And so the way they had to shut that down and to prevent that from happening, to prevent these Republican uh, congressmen and senators from objecting to the election of President Biden, was to stage this, this uh, crisis, bringing in their revolutionaries, Antifa and so on, and putting their FBI agents on the ground and uh, instructing their, the park police to, uh, to, to bring this all about so that they could um, declare an insurrection, put an end to the liberations, um, so um, intimidate the Republicans that they were so horrified that they would be associated with an insurrection that they would immediately surrender and they would immediately bow down before um, the uh, declaration of, of uh, Joseph Biden, you know, being named the president, that any, any opposition they showed would be considered to be sort of sympathy with the insurrectionists and heaven forbid that they should have that uh, taint. And, and also, you know, blaming it on Trump and Trump supporters it all fell very neatly, you might say, sort of like overripe fruit into the hands of the Democrats. And so what is the, what is the crime uh, that they are alleging that these basically, for the most part, tourists, right, the, the, the Make America Great Again supporters of Trump, what is the crime that they're being charged with now when they're being charged at all? because there are many who have been imprisoned for as much as two years or more with no charges and no, no hope of a trial really on the horizon. The charge was interfering or obstructing with the, the work of Congress, okay? Actually obstructing or interfering with the work of Congress. But you realize that if, if I'm right in what I'm saying here, Tom, the people who did that, those who interfered and obstructed the work of Congress with the Democrats themselves in engineering this, this whole thing. 
that they're the ones who would actually be guilty of the crimes that they're accusing others of, charging others, others of doing, and actually imprisoning others for doing. Uh, now, that's my own take on it. I realize that. And, you know, uh, take it for what it's worth. It might be worth nothing. But, it, you know, it's the only rational explanation I can, I can find uh, to explain how things went down that day. And um, actually explain everything that has happened since then and how the Democrats have proceeded, uh, in spite of the Constitution, to hold people uh, without charges, without, um, uh, you know, without due process of law. But they feel uh, just did, they, they are compelled to, um, to hold others responsible. Uh, for what they call an insurrection. I personally believe that there was an insurrection and that they are the insurrectionists and that they should be held responsible for it. And that those they're, uh, they're, they're trying to hold responsible are innocent of this. Yep. That's my own take anyway. So again, more can be said about that. Perhaps some of our viewers have views on the subject. I'd be surprised if they didn't, right? Yes, well, what do you think? I'm sure they will, Father. Um, what do you make of all this yourself? Though? I don't know, Father. I've got a lot of praying to do. <laughs> okay, I'd say that's a pretty good summary right there. Yeah. Well, Father, thanks for being here tonight. God bless you. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Tom. God yep. bless you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Do Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.